and welcome to another episode of Khaki Malarkey. Today we'll be talking to Nick Kaiser about his new book, Revenge in the Name of Honor, the Royal Navy's quest for vengeance in single ship actions of the War of 1812. Nick is from, uh, now bear with me pronunciation-wise on this, but the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia in Canada, uh, where he enjoys hiking and sailing. Adventurous man, we like it. And has completed a history degree at Acadia University. Nick also went on to do a master's at Halifax's Dull, again, pronunciation, Dalhousie University, I think. Did I get that right, Nick? You should have gotten that right. That's an English thing. <laughs> that, can I blame that on, can I call it a blonde moment? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> Nick specializes in naval history, and today he's going to be telling us all about the victories and losses of the British Royal Navy in the War of 1812. Welcome, Nick. How are you? Good. I'm grand. Thank you. Great. So first up, and um, we ask all of our authors to do this, can you summarize your book in 30 seconds for our listeners? I'll sure give it a try. French uh, <laughs> no. Name of Honor is basically a narrative story about a series of single ship losses suffered by the Royal Navy during the War of 1812 against the Americans. So in each one, one of America's you know, famous heavy frigates engaged and defeated one of the Royal Navy's own frigates. They were shattering, like utterly shocking losses uh, you know, against the Amer tiny American Navy, they were unexpected. So this book is, you know, chronicles those actions and then how the Navy and the nation responded to them. You know, from outcries in the House of Commons to desperate attempts by Royal Navy captains to seek revenge, even risking one's own ship and career. So ultimately it's a story of the nation and the Navy and how they reconciled with the losses and sought retribution in a more the name of a collective British sense of honor. Amazing, I think we came in around about 30 seconds there. 14, nice. but we'll nice. do. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, Nick. Well, let's jump straight into this for then. Um, am I correct in saying that this is a, the book is a product of your MA thesis? So what really sparked this kind of area of history for you and to bring you particularly to the story of one Captain James Darcy? Am I saying that right? Darcy? Darcy? I think it's Decrez. Decrez. Um, okay, well, I'm dyslexic, so me and pronunciation... <laughs> I we'll give you a pass. <laughs> yeah, on the off already. But please, Nick, far away. Uh, yeah, so the book is an extension of my master's thesis, which in turn came out of work I did as an honor student at Acadia. So when I was an undergraduate student at Acadia, doing an honors project, and I was doing it on just what made the Royal Navy a really effective fighting force or an Napoleonic era in general. That was the focus. Now, it was a very remarkably successful military force during the area. Era had won nearly every battle in, like, every major battle, nearly every minor battle. But as I was researching the topic, I had one problem, and that was the losses in the War of 1812, which I knew about. So I had to find a way to reconcile that with the narrative I was telling. Now, the British and Canadian historiography on the subject has been pretty consistent. They've always focused on the fact that they were uneven contests. So because they weren't even contests, they weren't fair fights, they're not really that important. That's the historiography. But then I discovered the account of Captain James de Cres, uh, who was, was the first captain to lose his ship. And he had an entirely different perspective. In his court-martial defense, he didn't say, um, you know, we were fighting an uneven fight, wasn't my fault, wasn't a loss of honor. He instead said, our loss was only due to bad luck. <laughs> if we had another go, if I had better conditions, I could have won with the same ship and the same crew. Wow. Now, I expected the Grace's account to be more of the historiography. I expected him to use that very easy defense. We were yeah. okay. He does not, not at all. So I thought there was something there. 
so before we get into the kind of nitty gritty of uh, ship battles, can you tell us a bit about like the important ships in the period? Gives us sort of who's who of the ships having these big battles. So I know there's the USS Constitution. What's the sort of playing field looking like? Sure. So we're talking about frigates. So these are single deck, small sailing warships, which were sort of an all important scouts and mobile force of the Royal Navy and other navies. Of these are everything from scouting to frontline fighting, convoy protection. They're all around for the style warship. At the time, most frigates of the Royal Navy and other navies were rated at 38 guns, which meant that they carried you know, around 48 in total weapons, main batteries of 18 pounders. So they fired balls that weigh 18 pounds. And they were the global standard for the fast, heavily armed frigate. Um, the Royal Navy had experimented with heavier frigates as the French had. Now, these are carrying uh, 24 pounder guns. But after two decades of fighting by 1812, they were deemed to be too expensive, not very cost effective, so they don't really use as much. The United States, on the other hand, had experimented with heavier frigates and they were fine with them. So that included Constitution and two of her sisters, the United States and President. These were massive warships. They were rated at 44 guns, but they carried close to 60, 24 pounders. And they were designed, because the United States didn't have a large Navy, to be able to outfight anything they found, anything they could fight, and run from anything bigger. Oh, wow. That's really interesting, Nick. It's not really an area I know much about. Well, this, I'd say this is more for you and Zach know a bit more on this kind of stuff. So this is really interesting for me to kind yeah, of... Yeah, no, it's nice to hear about. This history. Yeah. Definitely. Well, really, I was just briefly, Nick, so what is at stake in 1812? Like, who was fighting and why? Mm -hmm. So it's been British and the Americans. And the reason why, from the Americans' perspective, because it really depends on who you've asked this, mm -hmm. this question, the historiography is strangely nationalistic even today. For the Americans, this was viewed as a second war of independence. So after the Revolutionary War, after Americans won independence, the British had never really treated the American public like a proper country. They thought they were kind of pathetic and backwater and didn't treat them with a lot of respect. So there were a number, number of diplomatic incidents you know, over the decades. Mm -hmm. So it came to a, a head in 1812. A lot of British policies had really annoyed the Americans. And so James Madison, the president, declared war in the United Kingdom and launched an invasion of Canada, which he expected would go swimmingly. Now, in fact, <laughs> it was a disaster because he didn't reckon on Canadians fighting back. Right. For Canada, for the Canadian colonies, because there wasn't a nation called Canada yet, this became sort of a struggle for existence as a part of the British Empire. So Canada was home to a lot of uh, the children of loyalists from the Americans, Americas, who had fled after the Revolutionary War, who wanted, largely wanted to remain part of Britain. And so this war, especially in our collective memory here, is, you know, that, is that fight. You know, are we going to become a British country, you know, keep the Queen as head of state, or are we going to be part of the American Republic? So immigration-wise, between the UK and Canada, how much immigration was kind of going on at this point? How did that affect? So remarkably little at this point, because Canada is still a very new colony. Um, and I think the trauma of the American Revolution kind of put off the desire of Britons wanting to move to Canada. Yeah. So most, most people live in Canada. There are the French Canadians who have been there before the conquest. There were the First Nations people who didn't really like Britons or Americans. <laughs> and then there were... Um, people who had been born largely in the United States. And there was a mixture of loyalists, people who had fled explicitly because of the revolution, and some who had been there before, who kind of had, weren't quite sure what was going on. But we were largely were 
the English Canadians were largely American at the time. So it was quite a shock to Washington yeah. that they put up a fight. Yeah. They expected they could just roll right in. Oh, it's really interesting. So talking about like victories and losses then, so should we start in the book where it kind of went wrong? You know, why were the British doing so badly? It's typically, and I think in even my popular memory, I've seen that the British were ruling the high seas and they were so dominant. So what kind of changed here? So exactly. We were, and I say we because we were, you know, Haldax was a firmly British city at the time. The British Navy was, you know, ruling the waves. And that's why the losses were so shocking. So for the whole of the Napoleonic Wars, Royal Navy, you know, to achieve the new height of invincibility, it had won every major battle, almost every minor battle from 1st of June to Trafalgar. And in doing so, the nation became incredibly confident in the Navy's ability to wage war. As one later American story put it, the public in Britain and here in Halifax were fed a news diet of naval victories for two decades. And this crafted a so-called spell of invincibility. That was seemingly broken by destruction of Guerriere and action of the Constitution. Now as what went wrong, well, it, it really depends which action we're talking about. In the case of Guerriere or that of Macedonian and Java, the two ever frigates that were lost in 1812, the agrees that they were badly overmatched by the Americans. For one thing, they were fighting an enemy with much larger crews and firepower and who were superbly trained. So unlike the typical French and Spanish ship of the period, the Americans were like really well-trained, well-led, well-trained, and well-armed. So English commentators at the time even suggested that they were essentially Englishmen themselves, Americans' British heritage. And that they had somehow inherited a British naval, uh, English naval talent. <laughs> so they're like trying to take credit for it, even though they. <laughs> it's, it's a way of trying to defend themselves from the loss of honor that they felt. Yeah. Okay, no, it's fine. They're basically English themselves. That's the cheat. Learn from the best. <laughs> um, now, there are other battles, though, which were between pretty similar forces, where that's non excuse. And the most remarkable is that of the Pervier, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. And <laughs> Yeah, for Pervier. So in this action, a small British sloop of Pervier under Captain Richard Wales was soundly and spectacularly defeated by USS Peacock, completely obliterated. And when you read the accounts, there's little surprise as to why. Mm. So Richard Wales and his officers admitted that they had never really trained the crews in the use of gunnery. Um, they'd only ever fired one gun once in drill. So they were just winging it and it went really well. <laughs> Basically, fine. And this is even more remarkable because this ship at one point had been underwater briefly. It had sunk during a storm in Halifax. They oh. later lifted her up, but underwater, all of her gun fastening fastenings had rusted. So when the ship got into action, they started actually firing the guns. They all started snapping off the fastenings. Oh no! They go curving across the deck because they'd never been tested. Oh my god! The men were poorly trained. The guns were in poor condition. It. it it was not a fair, it was not a good, like fair contest. No. Mm. contest. Wow. And when you're talking about like destruction, kind of in terms of the actual ships being destroyed or men being lost, like what was more of a, was it like deadly or are they just going for the infrastructure? I guess you would call it. Well, going for the infrastructure, yes, but that in turn is very deadly. So mm. uh, the weapons that are involved are typically like round shots, so a big iron ball. Yeah. Which smashes through wood it causes, you know, really jagged, deadly splinters of Blinces, yeah. And then that will quickly start cutting down men. So the losses on a pervier were quite heavy. 
Yeah. How did that affect morale? Was there anything said about how that kind of affected the troops in terms of their morale in so, battles? Very little because the Royal Navy was very careful about what they put out there into the mm. press. Um, so for example, the loss of the Pervier and some of the ever smaller sloops of the more even contests, mm. they're not in any of the newspapers in Britain. So those were the hardest to study because those accounts are hard to find. Mm. The loss of Macedonian and Guerriere, you know, I can yeah. go back to the London Gazette and find you know, excerpts of testimonies and reports because they were Yeah, I was going to ask what other sources, like what, what are you using to do the bulk of your research? Yeah, so uh, ideally I will have an after action report sent back mm -hmm. home. And again, for some of these smaller actions, they disappeared. Yeah. Even available in the archives in London. Mm. Um, so ideally I'll have that. Ideally I'll have access to the court martial testimonies, which is where you get the really nitty detail of what was going on. Because the court martial yeah, will find out what went wrong. And on a rare occasion, I'll have an actual personal account, like a letter or a diary from someone involved, and then I get their you know, perspective. Yeah, it's nice weird. to have that view as well, isn't it? Especially when you've got the kind of after-action report as well, kind of matching things up, putting it and together. Letters, letters of the diaries are not intended to be published. Mm -hmm. So I'll be unfiltered by what the Royal Navy wants yeah. to see what the Royal Navy actually thought. Get the real gossip. <laughs> <laughs> so how did contemporaries re react to these losses? Again, it, while, it varies wildly depending on who we're talking about. So the, the public and the political elite, you know, in Britain, as well as in Halifax, they were river shock and outrage. You know, a sampling mm -hmm. of headlines here in Britain or in Halifax will tell you that, as with the speeches of British MPs. So a future prime minister, George Canning, stood up in House of Commons after hearing of these losses, and he declared that this had ended Britain's spell of invincibility the key term that everyone kept throwing around. Yeah. Somehow this spell was broken. The administrators and the admirals of the Royal Navy, they were just as worried, because they're the ones in charge of this war effort. And I imagine morale is getting worse and worse yeah. as these losses keep happening. So they took steps to try to avoid the losses you know, in the future. So come 1813, you know, a year into the war, they instituted an explicit order that prohibited British captains from actually, you know, seeking one-on-one -on -one fights with the Americans. Right. ordered, do not do it. Do not risk your ship. Yeah. Because they shattered moral perspective. And Britain had really nothing to gain from these fights. Because they had an immense numerical superiority in terms of ships anyway. All you're doing is giving the Americans some moral victories. Yeah. Didn't seem worth it. <laughs> Unless you were a Royal Navy captain, in which case it was definitely worth it. Yes, that is, yeah, that's true. Repeatedly, they were violating orders and yeah. seeking help anyway. Um, and none was more dedicated than Captain Phil Broke. So Captain of HMS Shannon, in 1813, mm. he all but invited an American captain that he was supposed to be blockading in oh, Boston. Wow. There were two mean? American ships in the harbor ready for sea, President and Congress. Uh -huh. Broke commanded Shannon and one other frigate, and they were supposed to be guarding the harbor. They had sent away the rest of their blockading fleet intentionally. They sent them back to Nova Scotia yeah. and invited a two-on-two -two fight. Now, it was a terrible decision. President was a very heavy frigate. Shannon was not. It wasn't mm -hmm. going to be a fair contest. And the captain of president, he wasn't an idiot. He had a job to do. 
He had his big open harbor guarded by two ships. So he just left. He just escaped. He didn't stick around to fight. <laughs> See, yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. I'm off. And, and then he went and he basically ran amok through the entire, like, he sailed through British waters. He sailed to West Africa and it sent the entire Royal Navy into a complete panic. <laughs> I, mean, I love the idea of just a ship going around causing absolute carnage, just like panic exactly. everywhere. You know, bigger ships were being moved around all the time. <laughs> yeah. Was, is they are petrified of another victory, especially one yeah. in British waters. It's bad enough that happens in the colonies. Yeah. Britain, that's, that's bad. Yeah. No, it's so, not often you hear these stories about Britain kind of being given the runaround on the seas. And Broke's career is essentially on the line here because mm. he did not do his job. <laughs> He did how not salvage it? Oh, how did he salvage it? By yeah, winning salvage a, his career. By winning, by winning a victory. So let's get into that then. Now we've got the kind of the losses out of the way. What, what can you tell us about the victories? How, how did they come about? How did they turn it around? So the first, again, was a victory by Captain Broke of HMS Shannon. So about a month after President and her sister ship escapes, he's still blockading Boston because there's a few other frigates in the port getting ready for sea. And at, some, at one point, you know, stores on his ship are getting pretty low. So he takes all the stores from his companion ship, sends her home to Halifax. So just Shannon off Boston. Mm -hmm. And there's one American frigate now, USS Chesapeake, ready to sail. So this time, he decides to do literally the exact same thing. He sends a letter ashore, inviting Chesapeake to come out and fight him, ship on ship, one on one. Mm. Exactly what he tried before, if it had been a catastrophe. But this time, it works because the captain of Chesapeake is exactly like Brooke. He's obsessed with, you know, winning a single ship action. That's what he wants. So he comes out and they, they, have, a, they have a fierce, but very brief action. It's in just 15 minutes. 15 minutes? 15 minutes. Even, that, that's, even that's a, more like 11 or 12 minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> so How ship, much damage is done in, well, 12 minutes? A tremendous amount of damage. Wow. Because both crews are very well trained and they're very fast and accurate gunners. So the ships essentially converge, fierce cannonade, and then Broke leads his crew onto the decks of Chesapeake and just overruns it. Yeah. The captain of Chesapeake is cut down pretty quickly, so the Americans are leaderless, not sure what's going on. Yeah. Um, Broke himself is wounded grievously as well and leaves command to his first lieutenant, George Watt, who like takes the ship. Then he goes back to the stern of the vessel and he's going to haul up a British flag and a signal what they've won. Yeah. To tell the men on Shannon who are still waiting to see what happens, you know, we've won, we were good. Mm -hmm. In the confusion though, he accidentally grabs an American flag from the pile. Oh no. The <laughs> oh no. So he up, realizes his mistake, starts hauling it back down. Oh but no. A gunner, a gunner on Shannon sees an American flag going up the mast, thinks, <gasps> oh, they're trying to retake the ship. Uh, oh and they no. fire a gun. And George Watt is cut down, like in his <gasps> moment of victory. Oh my God. That was so awful. Like, and this would have, like, his career would have been made at this point and oh. snuffed out just like that. Oh my God. Can I just have a mix of over a flag? That's mad, isn't it? That's why I love military history because there's just all these little tiny bits that can change a yeah. whole entire narrative. It's insane, isn't it? But Nick, I just and wanted then, to quickly ask, sorry, you mentioned, I just absolutely fascinated that you can say like 
12 minutes was is there someone there who's taking a whole like recording the accounts of events and timing it and like you know like a war diary kind of thing at the time or yeah um every officer would have had a pocket watch on them so they'd be mm. keeping track roughly of the time so oh, cool. it's approximately 11 or 12 minutes because a few different accounts say different things yeah but of the few that there are it seems to be that the battle lasted about 11 or 12 minutes oh, oh hang on cool. that's in the way oh hi <laughs> Oh, <laughs> oh, I wish our listeners could see that a cat just appeared. <laughs> oh, sorry, Nick. Yeah, please so, continue. Um, <laughs> Distracted. So, so George Watt, he, he's killed in this moment of triumph. And in a weirdly demented way, that was actually really good for Halifax. Because the next in command was a young 22-year-old Lieutenant Provo Wallace, who was born in Halifax. His father was a clerk at the dockyard. And so he actually takes command and brings both ships into the city. Mm. It was Sunday morning. People were in church when they arrived. And someone who happened to be, you know, a bad Christian and wasn't at church, saw the ships coming into the harbor, <laughs> ran into the town, screaming about it. And so then the town flocks from church, you know, priests and everyone else, <laughs> to, to greet these two ships coming in. This yeah. is the first victory that they've had in the yeah. war. And the town erupts into celebrations. Party time, mate. Wow. I like how just because of that one person who wasn't at church allowed the whole <laughs> town to go and celebrate. Like, really, they, they've just gotten away with that really well, haven't they? <laughs> no, I'm probably exaggerating there. Probably more than one person wasn't at, at church. But there's no <laughs> Oh, wow. You can imagine those celebrations. Um, I know this is a subject without, I know particularly Zach... Uh, other co-hosts would be very interested in hearing about is your thoughts on the cult of Napoleon in academia and particularly popular culture I think it's understandably he's a bit of a controversial figure do you have much of an opinion on this just wanting um, to say right just inject here me and Zach are just total Napoleonic nerds right yeah Zach has another Zach does a podcast <laughs> called the Napoleonist here, so I'll plug you here right now Zach you're welcome um, <laughs> yeah we're just kind of really fascinated obviously it's amazing to hear about like the actual like the shit battles we will talk more about kind of the the other things you mentioned um in your book but it's really interesting to think about the legacy you don't often hear about the war of 1812 like what would be your thoughts yeah, yeah. on that and um okay, I would make one last comment about yeah no go for it yeah yeah, so the reason that Shannon's victory over Chesapeake was so you know, quick and superb mm -hmm. was down to Broke's training. Mm. Unlike most Royal Navy captains, he approached gunnery as a scientist. So he was constantly innovating with ways to make gunnery faster and more accurate. He did daily drills, you know, live firing, spent a lot of money on it. Mm. Um, and so his crew is one of the best trained in the Royal Navy. So in the War of 1812, you know, we, we see the, the very best Royal Navy can put forward, and that was Broke, HMS Shannon. And we also see the absolute worst they can put forward in the form of whales and a purgatory. So I've always found Napoleon and the cult surrounding him is really fascinating and kind of bizarre. So in France, and even in Quebec and Canada too, he's a romanticized figure, you know, because of his like legal code and, you know, that aspect of his reign. Um, even in Russia, he's strangely admired as well even though he you know invaded russia mm, yeah. um, but in britain of course he's you know, an ogre and a villain now in form of my own view of the man um i mean definitely has made an important contribution to france's legal code and development of sort of modern um views of justice and other like metric system and all, all that kind of thing 
but it's really hard to view him without turning to like his seizure of power, you know, his first yeah. conflict emperor. Um, he's, he's hardly a bastion of liberty. He's considered, you know, a predatory uh, empire. Mm. And, you know, he has his reputation as a military genius. He was a brilliant general. But to achieve that, he waged you know, an unprecedented series of bloody wars through the period, which didn't really need to happen. So he, he is he's a very glorious and I think respected figure, but he was also kind of a, a maniac. Mm. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, a good way to summarize that. I'd like to I'd love to know what Zach's thoughts are, if he agrees with that as well. Phoebe, what do you think on that kind of well, yeah, it's kind of, it, it is interesting, isn't he? The way that he has such a, a controversial um, legacy, kind of, was he a monster? I saw there was kind of a period in historiography where it was like, is Napoleon Hitler? Like, you know, were they just the same? <laughs> like, so I don't know, but no, they're complex figures, like everyone in the mm. period. I know um, kind of a lot of people doing work on people like Wellington as well and his yeah. relationship with Napoleon. Um, I mean, I wanted to ask you as well about Horatio Nelson and his kind of, um, impact or his legacy on the Navy at this point? What do you think about him? I Certainly, I well loved. I mean, the, the column in Chicago Square is a testament yeah. of yeah. the Navy. Love, loves him, still loves him um, for, for two centuries now. Uh, and in Halifax, too, um, one Canadian historian, Keith Mercer, has done really good work on the call of Nelson here in Halifax. Mm. Um, you know, when he was operating, like up until 1815, people here would follow every bit of news they could get, any like rumor or hint that came mm. into the port on, on ships. They would follow and they would discuss and they would like speculate about, they, they'd yeah. love to. Again, because he's the great British hero. Mm. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a, even a rumor that is almost certainly false that he stayed for a time in Halifax as a younger officer. He definitely didn't, but how going <laughs> to talk about it anyway. <laughs> So do um, people just really want to believe that like, that he'd been there, that they'd exactly. walked in there? Yeah. yeah. He, had, he had stayed briefly in Newfoundland, which is a different colony, mm. but never had mm. Okay. Now, as for the greater side of Nelson, there were two aspects that I, I, I thought about over the last year. One, which I'm sure your listeners have all heard about, is his support for the West India lobby. So the opposition of abolitionism in the United Kingdom, um, which just came to a head with the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I've read, I suspect that he did probably have some sympathy for the lobby um, because he, he knew um, many of the, the planters of the slaveholders in the West Indies well. He spent a lot of time there as a young officer. It, it might have been exaggerated quite how extensive his support was. You know, he wasn't yeah. a parliamentarian. Um, he wasn't, you know, actively involved in the debates. Mm-hmm. Um, and the letter in question, and I w- if I can find the source, I'd love to speak on it further, but I, I did read that the sort the letter in question has been changed from the original. But again, I can't comment okay. on specifics there. All right. Um, changed in what way? Uh, basically to sound more imperialistic oh, is what I right. can listen to another story to speak on it. But overall, I mean he probably did have some sympathies for West India lobby. Again, yeah. he was you know many Brits did. It was a contentious issue at the time. Um, the Royal Navy was always a strange place. It was intended to protect the colonies that held the slaves. At the yeah. same time, there were many freed Africans who served in the Royal Navy. And one, a man named John Perkins, who was born a slave in Jamaica, he ends up a commissioned captain in the Royal Navy during a period. Mm. 
Um, so it, it, this bizarre relationship the Royal Navy has with you know this this topic. It's got yeah. There's one thing I see really often in like in regards to like history and Black Lives Matter protests. So they always say, oh, well, the British Navy stopped slavery. Like that myth kind of gets peddled mm. a lot mm -hmm. online. Yeah, because it, it, it certainly did end slavery, slave trade, but it also protected slavery at the same yeah. time. Yeah. They like everything. It's just you look at it from different sides and it's obviously. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting um, to hear about Nelson's. Um, and, uh, did he own slaves? I don't believe he did. No, um, he wasn't he did. a big land landholder. Yeah, uh, but I believe that his wife, his her family, did own slaves. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. he was too busy being a war hero. <laughs> that's that's the thing, and I guess the real question of if Nelson had survived Trafalgar, mm. if he had gone on to be a member of Parliament, mm. what would have impacted that? Especially yeah, that's in actually the, a very interesting question. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and Nelson, you know, beyond the slavery issue, he was just kind of an a-hole in general. Um, one anecdote written by the future Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, in, I think, 1804. Um, you know, the two met while Wellesley was back in England, you know, returning from India. And he recalls Nelson being, you know, pompous and condescending. He was notoriously poor company in general. Until Nelson slips away. And he goes to ask who this one army officer is. He learns who it is. He learns that he's, you know, this famous general returning from India. He comes back and he's pleasant and respectful, an entirely different person. So Nelson certainly had an incredible ego. And it <laughs> seems that he em employed that. If he thought you were worth talking to, he was quite nice to you. If he had <laughs> you were, yet he kind of, you know, exhumed an air of authority and superiority. Yeah. But it's in like a what can I get out of you kind of way. And mm. like, yeah. yeah thinking of himself <laughs> uh, well to go back to your book then um I, what you use well, I mean you use many sources but you use a lot of personal accounts as well are there any particular stories you want to highlight is there any people that any accounts that you've read and you've thought oh, like what a story uh two but I'm gonna I'll highlight yeah so one is that of Samuel Leach so he's a common sailor um not well yeah no career deckhand who wrote a memoir, 30 years from home, about his life. So it starts with him as a sailor on board HMS Macedonia, the second frigate to be lost in the war. And then it chronicles his life as it moves, you know, first into the American Navy, and then, then beyond. Uh, it's a really rare look into the lives of these common sailors of the period, which you just do not get in many other sources. Um, because of the nature of my book, I didn't use it to a whole lot. I think yeah. I didn't even say it in the book, I used it a bit on the thesis. Just because it, it doesn't tell you much about what my story was, but mm -hmm. it's an incredibly important story regardless. Mm -hmm. um, but my favorite were the um, personal letters of Philip Brooke. And without these letters, I don't think this project would have been feasible. Uh, so he wrote extensively, primarily to his wife back in England, you know, from 1805 until 1813 when he finally goes home. He was the son of a minor country gentleman, um, and his letters are a wealth of information on his loves, desires, frustrations, especially his deep urge for what he called an honorable action, honorable victory. Hmm. By the War of 1812, Broke had become a man like, absolutely obsessed by two things. One, he wants to return home to be of his wife, like, constantly talking to his wife about that in his letters. Hmm. Secondly, 
he wants to win a great battle at sea, you know, an honorable action, which he views as his only way to go home with honor. If he goes home before winning this battle, you know, he can't tell himself he's done his duty, that he's done his job. And the War of 1812 drove that further because he's seen his fellow captains, you know, De Creus and John Carden, you know, all lose their ships to the Americans. And it, it drives him into a frenzy because he now feels that Britain, Britain's honor is at stake and at all costs, it has to be avenged. And mm. that drives, you know, his frankly ridiculous plans off Boston. Yeah. Uh, because he, he has to get that victory for him and for Britain. Yeah. And that's obviously what's produced your fabulous book on <laughs> the quest for vengeance. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> oh, well, Nick, I think that's a kind of lovely little story to leave it on the book with. And then now we will kind of move into our more fun and personal round. Where we get yes, so unless it's like you. Yes. This is always our favourite bit. <laughs> we hope you're ready for our quick fire questions. <laughs> so, um, first of all, we just wanted to ask what sparked your passion for history? What made you into the historian you are today? Um, my father was a sailor when he was younger, like a recreational ah. sailor. And he, he loved naval history yeah. too. I grew you up sail now, don't you, as well? Yes, yes. Um, which is why I love living in Halifax. We have yeah. Harbor here. And so it's always been a love of maritime history that's driven my interest in history, you know, from mm. the beginning, which is why this has been such a special project for me, because this is like the epitome of my childhood obsessions with like this specific kind of topic, you know, yeah. like age five or six. Oh, <laughs> amazing. Oh, that's great. That's so lovely that you pursued your passions and here you are now making a career from it. I think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. So this is time for our quick fire round, which is inspired, well, kind of partly stolen from another podcast called <laughs> Good, the Bad and the Rugby. Um, I have to drop them in there. And kind of your first instant answers to these questions. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So who is your favourite historical figure in all of time? Uh, Lieutenant Provo William, Provo William Perry Wallace, the Nova Scotian, who I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the longest serving naval officer in British history. Like he was officially oh, wow. in the Navy, hadn't retired by age 100. Mm-hmm. He refused to retire. <laughs> As Stubborn he did. I like it. <laughs> it's like that bit more full street. It's like, he's not effing leaving. <laughs> <laughs> the Navy okay. actually explicitly asked him to retire and he still said no. No, oh, he's determined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, flip it on its head. Who's your least favorite figure? Uh, General George Washington, uh, overrated. Not that great of a general, but a really lucky one. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, we've not had that one before. Yeah. Like okay, that. so if you could take three historical figures on a road trip with you, who would they be? Jeez. Oh, um, ben Franklin. Because uh-huh. he would have some ridiculous stories. Yeah, he was good entertainment. He, he yeah. was a traitor. He had ridiculous stories. Mm. Um, I think Joan of Arc, because she's a badass. Oh yeah, like that. I yeah. love to talk. She'd to her. also have a great story or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm tempted have- to say John A. Macdonald, who was our first prime minister. I think we oh, kicked yeah. him out of the car very quickly because he was rampant, <laughs> drunk, and a bit racist. <laughs> but but again, some really great stories. You know, he okay. once passed out drunk during a parade, which is held oh, my God. the son of the Queen. He While he's prime minister, he passed out drunk, like in front of the prince. Awkward. He does not care. 
Okay, and then so the final one, if what has been a highlight of your career so far? Okay, so as an historian, um, I mean, this book, um, yeah. I didn't think I'd ever get to write a book. Uh, and being able to develop this long standing love of naval history, you know, of frigate battles into like, a project, into a book has been incredible. Mm. Um, a difficult project because all the sources I need are over there, where you guys are, <laughs> not here. Um, but it's been really fun. Um, and then as a teacher, so I'm a high school teacher as well, it's my main career. Oh. Um, highlight of that has been over the last year, I've been, I spent some time teaching a class of new Canadian students. So they were mostly um, refugees, just learning English, just had mm. come from Syria and other countries. Oh, wow. And they've come here literally with nothing, from really traumatic like childhoods in Syria. Um, many haven't been to school in some time. Yeah. I asked them uh, recently when I was substituting one of their classes, like as an English assignment, you know, list three things that you've learned about Canada since coming here that you didn't know before. And one of the kids, you know, it breaks my heart, but he told me, that in Canada, I learn you don't have to fight. Oh, oh that's so sweet. Sweetest kids I've ever met. And it's it's been an honor to oh. teach them here in Canada, like, because this is their home now. Oh, oh that's, so, that's, a lo that's so lovely. That's wonderful. God, what a nice story to finish on. Yeah, that oh. really is. Yeah, I, I agree. Working in a school is great, obviously. So I'm, I've, I'm also working in a school at the moment with oh. 11 to 16s. And some of the things they say, I just, <laughs> oh, they just make me want to cry. I love them. <laughs> um, so yeah, oh, amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Nick. This has been absolutely great. It's been Thank so interesting. You. And that was Nicholas James Kaiser talking to us about his book, Revenge in the Name of Honour, the Royal Navy's quest for vengeance in the single ship actions of the War of 1812. Join us next week when we have a very exciting episode for you because one of our hosts will be turning into an interviewee. So, Zach, if you're listening, I hope you're nervous um, because we will be uh, having a panel on to talk about life in the Redcoat Army. Um, so we'll get some details about that for you on our Twitter page. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet and give us a follow at Khaki Malarkey. Until next time, I'm Phoebe Style. And I'm Olivia Smith. This is Khaki Malarkey signing off. Thank you.